Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. In a day I'm speaking with Myra Strober about her new book, Sharing the Work, What My Family and Career Taught Me About Breaking Through and Holding the Door Open for Others. Myra Strober is a labor economist. She is Professor Emerita at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University and Professor of Economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, by courtesy. She is the co-author of The Road Winds Uphill All the Way, Gender, Work, and Family in the United States and Japan, which was also published by MIT Press. Myra Stober, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today. You're welcome. Now, your book begins with a meeting with a colleague in the economics department at Berkeley in 1970, a meeting that started you on the road to feminism as you went home to Palo Alto that evening. What happened in that meeting? And when you say that you became a feminist after that meeting, what changed? What, what, was, what were you pre-meeting and then what changed for you post-meeting? Well, I called for the meeting with the chair of the economics department at Berkeley uh, because I had just started there as a lecturer. And uh, one of the first days on the job, I met two of my former classmates from MIT. We had all received our PhDs, and I noted that they were both assistant professors and I was a lecturer. So I made an appointment to see the chair to find out why that was the case. And I asked him very straightforwardly why I was a lecturer. And he answered that it was because I lived in Palo Alto. And I was shocked because I'd never heard that one had to live in Berkeley in order to be a tenure track member of their faculty. So I kind of slunk out of his office and got into my car to drive back to Palo Alto. And uh, somewhere on the Bay Bridge, it occurred to me that I had been had, that one certainly did not have to live in Berkeley to be on their tenure track faculty. And that the fact was that there was only one woman in the economics department and she had been there for 20 years or more and she was still a lecturer. So I realized that it was because I was a woman, uh, not because I lived in Palo Alto, that I was a lecturer. And that insight uh, made me a feminist. I wasn't actually quite sure what a feminist was. <laughs> and so the next day I went to the library and began reading about feminism and uh, decided I indeed was a feminist. And so that was the beginning of my fights for myself and for other women to get equity in higher education. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is an American feminist who shows up, particularly in that part when you started reading. What did you get from Stanton that made you want to go forward? Well, I love the fact that Elizabeth Cady Stanton used the word monopoly to describe or, or rather the verb monopolize to describe what men had done uh, to take for themselves the most lucrative occupations. And she mentioned medicine and law, but I quickly uh, moved from medicine and law to uh, being a professor. And she also said that the remedy for all of this was to fight. And I agreed that I needed to fight and women needed to fight in order to gain the kind of equity that we needed. 
I want to stay at Berkeley just a little bit longer because there was a person on the economics department, Lloyd Ullman, who ended up, I got a sense from the book, was a very important figure in your professional development. And you taught really the first woman in work seminar at Berkeley in the early 70s. You know, could you give us a sense of how different the questions of feminism were, or maybe they weren't any different than the questions that one might see in a woman in work seminar today? Well, some of the some of the questions were similar. Lloyd Ullman really was a very important person in my life. Um, he was a la- senior labor economist. And after I read Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others and The Feminist Mystique by Betty Friedan and began to look at the data on women in work, I realized I wanted to teach a class on women in work and that I needed Lloyd Ullman's assent to do that. So I ran into him one day and asked him with uh, great nervousness whether I could do that. And he was really a lovely man with a wonderful smile. And I could tell as soon as I'd asked him that that he had thought of a joke. And he said he realized that if I taught a course on women in work, he would have to teach my basic labor economics class and that he would do it as long as I would give him the Susan B. Anthony medal. And so we both laughed. And years later, when he retired, I actually did give him a Susan B. Anthony medal. But the class went extremely well uh, in some ways um, because the students really were so hungry for a class on women in work. But in other ways, um, I was caught short because the students were far more radical than I was. I was interested in things like childcare and occupational segregation and earnings differences. And they were interested in uh, things like abortion and more radical issues that I didn't think went with women in work. Um, I gave them a reader and they wanted to discuss an article on um, women who were interested in violence against men. And I realized that if I was going to talk about women in work, I was going to have to learn all of these more radical uh, feminisms and understand and make students understand why I was not a radical feminist. Now, this book, although certainly goes into your professional development as a labor economist, both at Berkeley and Stanford, it's also a personal memoir. You spend time talking about your childhood growing up in New York, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your parents affected your views on women in the workplace. Yes, well, my mom was a feminist, even though she didn't call herself a feminist. Um, She was a working woman, a school secretary, at a time when there were not very many married women in the middle class who were working if they had children. But my mom was bored staying at home, and she was lucky that her aunt was willing and able to take care of my sister and me, and so my mom went to work. And my dad was very supportive of her. He realized that she was far happier working, and he was willing to take a lot of ribbing from his friends and neighbors who would say uh, he, they noticed that he was sending the little lady to work. And my dad always uh, said to my mom that he laughed at that because they didn't realize that he wasn't sending my mom anywhere. <laughs> so I heard all of this as a child, and my mom was very... Um, pointed in her views about marriage. And she always said, marriage is not the be all and the end all. You have to be able to support yourself in case of a rainy day. So I got that message loud and clear. 
It's also fascinating that they produced a family with two daughters, both of whom ended up becoming economists. Yes. They had one, we all, my sister and I and my parents had wonderful dinner party, dinner time conversations all throughout our childhood and the years we were in high school. We talked about politics. We talked about economics. um, We talked a lot about labor unions and uh, my parents were very pro-labor union. Uh, Although neither of them was in a union, my dad was a salesman in the clothing industry um, years later, my mom did join the union uh, when the um, AFT organized in New York. But my sister and I both um, came to love history and economics uh, from talking to my parents. So we meant, I mentioned earlier that uh, your professional career took you to Berkeley, but the bulk of it as at Stanford. Um, you moved from Berkeley to Stanford in the early 70s, and you started off at the Graduate School of Business. How would you describe the culture to Stanford that time regarding female faculty members? Well, uh, Francine Gordon and I were the first two female faculty members, and uh, many of the men who were a lot older than we uh, were clearly unhappy with our being there at all particularly since it meant that they could no longer have hold their faculty retreats at uh, one of the men's clubs in uh, a nearby uh, suburb here. And uh, they said the most outrageous things to us, like maybe they could put bags over our heads and sneak us into this male faculty retreat uh, so that nobody would notice that there were women there. And it was very unpleasant. It was also very unpleasant uh, when some of the men students uh, made it very clear in a blunt way that they were not going to be taking a class with me. They um, stood up, some of them, and as they were walking out, uh, said that they were simply not paying the kind of tuition that was required in order to take macroeconomics with the likes of me. So that was all very difficult. But our greatest support, both Francine and I, came from the dean of the business school, R.J. Miller, who had come from the Ford Motor Company and um, gave us absolutely the most support one could ever hope for. We used to go to him and tell him some of these stories about what was happening, and he would just say, ignore them. They're all babies. The students are babies. The faculty are babies. Just do your thing, <laughs> move on, and that was that was so helpful to both of us. I would think perhaps you might have run into this at, say, a Harvard or a Yale in the early '70s, which had just recently gone coeducational. But Stanford started out as a coeducational institution, and women had been there really since the beginning. So I'm a little, I'm just a little, I was a little surprised to read how uh, how dismissive they were of you, considering that it's not like women hadn't been on the Stanford campus before. Yes, but the business school um, was a graduate institution only, had no undergraduates. And really, there had been no more than five women students in any class at the business school, um, including the class of 1971, that, um, you know, since the beginning of the business school in the 1920s. So faculty at the business school were not used to having women students, and they certainly were not used to having women faculty. 
So now you are primarily a labor economist, and although you started out in the graduate school of business, you spent, as I gathered, most of your time at Stanford in the educate the SASE, which I was education. At, which do you consider yourself more a business? I guess a, a professor of business or professor of economics? And I know that there is that sometimes there's a kind of a fine line dividing the two. Well, I've certainly spent more time at the School of Education, but interestingly, when I retired from the School of Education. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, the business school asked me to come back and teach at the business school, <laughs> despite the fact that they had turned me down for tenure uh, some 35 years earlier. And so uh, the last few years, I've been teaching only at the business school. But I think my work uh, is both in economics and education. Um, and the business school students uh, enjoy hearing what I have to say, and so do the education school students. At one, at one time, I actually uh, directed a joint program between business and education, and those students were particularly interesting because uh, they cared about both business and education. You talked about in the class of 71, only five women at the, G, the Stanford GSB. Uh, as your professional life grew throughout the 70s, 80s, up until now, I mean, when I think about where women were in American corporations when you started at Stanford and where they are now, you know, I would think there'd be huge changes. But again, I'm not a woman and I'm not in a corporation. So over your professional career, could you talk about probably what's the biggest change in how corporations have brought women into management? And I guess conversely, what's been a problem that you really surprised hasn't been solved yet? Well, um, because of President Johnson's executive orders uh, saying that government contractors had to hire both women and minorities, uh, many corporations began to look for uh, women who were qualified to be managers uh, for them. And they couldn't find very many because very few women had been trained. And so the advisory council at the Stanford Business School came to the dean and said, we need you to start educating women uh, to be managers. And the business school did that. We recruited for only one year. And after that, when it became known that Stanford and other business schools were interested in having women students, women began to apply in droves. So they began entering uh, corporations and uh, little by little, corporations began to hire women, particularly in fields where women were the majority of employees in consumer products, in marketing, and women have made great strides there. But there are what I would call pockets of success and pockets of stubborn resistance. And one of the pockets of stubborn resistance is venture capital. Uh, which here in Silicon Valley and really all over the country have very few women as compared to, for instance, places like Deloitte, which has made a great effort to increase flexibility for both women and men. And I think the biggest change I see right now is uh, men students, men in business who want flexibility for themselves and ally with women uh, who are seeking that kind of flexibility. Men want paternity leaves. Men want to be able to um, go to their uh, kids' soccer games on occasion. And so we now have many more people, uh, men and women, looking for that kind of flexibility 
in corporations. I think in some ways, the most stubborn problems are outside of most companies. Most companies cannot have their own child care centers. They're just not big enough and they don't have enough employees in the right age group. And so I think the biggest problems are that we don't have a child care system that's affordable and accessible and high quality. And so uh, women are taking a large amounts of time um, out of their career to try to, ch- to care for their children in that first year. It's very difficult to find infant care. Um, sometimes families will put their child on the waiting list for child care on the day they find out that they're going to have a child, and still a year later there's no slot for that child. So we need more child care, and we need paid parental leave. Uh, men want parental leave. Women want parental leave. And, you know, we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have paid maternity leave. So I think those two factors are important. And you actually see in the data that women who don't have children uh, have earnings that are very close to their male counterparts. So it's really a mommy penalty now rather than a woman penalty. And I think that will change once we have uh, a good child care system and paid parental leave. Of course, I have to ask, since it is an election year, how do you see these issues shaping up in the general election of 2016? I know so far in the primaries, there's perhaps been some discussion about this on the Democratic side, but this has not really been an issue that has been played out, even though the presumptive Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, has been talking about this stuff for quite a while. Yes, I think if Hillary uh, wins the presidency, that we will see again efforts to create uh, paid parental leave and child care. You know, in 1971, Congress passed a child care bill and sent it to President Nixon, who then vetoed it on the grounds that he thought it would weaken the family. I think he was wrong. I think child care strengthens the family. But um, since 1971, there's never been another bill sent to the president. and. Um, depending not only on the presidential election, but also the congressional elections, maybe we will have a child care bill that's sent and signed, and we'll have a child care system. Myra Strober, the author of Sharing the Work, What My Family and Career Taught Me About Breaking Through and Holding Door Open for Others. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. You're so welcome. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.